You're listening to TIP. On today's classic episode, Preston and I decided to read the all-time best-selling investment book, The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. Our episode was originally published as episode 88 back in November 2016. Preston and I met each other back in 2013, the year before we started the Investors Podcast. And it might surprise you to learn that we wrote three books together before we even considered doing a podcast. One of those books with a summary of The Intelligent Investor. The other two books were Security Analysis, also written by Benjamin Graham, and the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. Needless to say, Warren Buffett was the very foundation that The Intelligent Investor was built upon. So when we learned that Buffett said that The Intelligent Investor is the best investment book ever written, we had to study every single detail of the book. So without further delay, here's Preston's and my book review of the investment classic, The Intelligent Investor. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. Hey, how's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for The Investor's Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Denmark. Today, we've got a book that a lot of people have heard us talk about. The author of the book is Benjamin Graham. Benjamin Graham wrote two books that were really famous. First one, Security Analysis, which we've done an episode on. And then the other book is The Intelligent Investor. So to just give everyone a quick background, if you're joining us for the first time on the show, and maybe you don't know who Benjamin Graham is. So Benjamin Graham was Warren Buffett's professor at Columbia. And Graham started teaching at Columbia University back in 1928. He wrote this book, and it was the textbook that he used in his class. And the textbook was called Security Analysis, which we've done the previous episode. How many episodes ago was that, Stig? Like 20 or something like that? Yeah, that sounds about right. Probably, Probably about 20 episodes ago. And so Ben Graham wrote this book, Security Analysis. Security Analysis was published back in 1934. So all of this was really kind of going on during the Great Depression. And Graham then was professor for quite a few years. He ended up being the professor for Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett, whose net worth is, uh, I don't know where it's at right now, maybe $70 billion, $65 billion, something like that. It's, it's way up there. One of the wealthiest people on the entire planet has said that everything that he has learned and his investing approach was completely shaped by Benjamin Graham, the author of these two books. And so and that's why we really like to place a lot of emphasis on Benjamin Graham. He's you know, the founder of value investing. A lot of people have attributed their massive net worth to following the principles of Benjamin Graham. So in today's episode, we're going to be reviewing The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. And where this book is a little bit different than security analysis is that The Intelligent Investor is kind of a watered down, maybe easier version, definitely geared towards the common investor opposed to like a security analyst that does it professionally working for a big bank. So this is for the common investor and how they can invest. So what we're going to do, Stig and I came up with, uh, actually Stig came up with the agenda, I should say. (laughs) (laughs) He emailed it to me, but Stig came up with the agenda and the way he broke it out is he said, Preston, let's do chapters one through seven in the first segment. Let's do chapter eight because that's a really important one. Then we're going to do nine through 19 and then chapter 20 all by itself. So we'll talk about intrinsic value, all sorts of things, and hopefully you guys enjoy this one. So let's go ahead and start this off. We're going to be reviewing the first seven chapters, one through seven, 
and kind of hitting the highlights between the two of us. So the book starts off with a very, very important discussion. And that discussion is distinguishing between an investor and a speculator. So here's the difference. Graham says that and when you're an investor, you're not seeking a massive return in a short duration or a short period of time. You're looking for a reasonable return. And so Graham doesn't necessarily say a reasonable return is 10% or less or anything like that. He leaves that really up to the reader to determine. But I think Graham would probably say if you're looking for a 50% return in a one-year span or a one-year time frame, that's probably getting into the realm where you're where you're looking for excessive gains and that really starts to become speculative in nature. So the second part is that when you have an investor, he's doing something to promote the safety of the return of on the principal. So the, an investor won't do anything that really compromises his principal in, in any type of extreme manner. So you know, let's say that you were going to invest in a large cap company. Let's just say it was a company like Apple and you were looking at Apple's returns and their revenues were really steady. They had all these consistent numbers and the expectation is that they're going to continue to earn at at least the level that they're earning today into the future. And there's no really anything that you can see on the horizon that would cause a major disruption in that in the next couple of years. That would be an example of investing because at this point in time, you can't necessarily say the revenues or the net income is all over the place. So it's not something that you can actually project or predict where the bad event is going to occur. That's where you get into more of an investing approach opposed to a speculative approach. You know, back in the day, Sirius XM Radio, their net income was up and down. They were moving stuff off their balance sheet onto their income statement. It was just kind of a mess if you looked at their financials. And so at that point in time, you could, as an investor versus a speculator, you could look at that pick and say, you know, next quarter they could have negative net income where they just had a positive one. That could totally happen based off of their track record and the things that have happened. If you know that as a person, as a person that's looking to invest upfront and you know it could potentially be bad, you've identified an event that could jeopardize your principle, which now goes into what Ben Graham would, would call speculation opposed to investing, because you already know the event that could really kind of come crashing down. So that's it. Those are the two things. You've got to be able to protect your principle, and you've got to go after things that are giving you reasonable returns, and that's what he would classify as investing. So here's the, here's the direct quote out of the book. He says, investing is promoting the safety of the principal and an adequate return. So that's where I'm pulling that from. And this is big. I mean, this is huge for a person to really kind of understand that. And I know it sounds really simple, but if you aren't doing that, then you are speculating. Then you are saying, I feel like this is the direction things are going to go in. Anytime you start throwing out the feel word opposed to, I have looked at the company's cash flows. They have been very consistent over the last five years. Looking towards the future, I expect those cash flows to continue to remain consistent, if not slightly grow. And because of that, when I do a discount cash flow analysis, taking those future cash flows and discounting them back to today's present value, I expect the value of the company to be $35 a share at a 7% discount rate. If it doesn't sound like that, that's how, you know, when, when Stig and I are doing the intrinsic value of an individual company, 
That's the conversation that we're having in our head and that we're actually writing out in order to determine the value of something. And here's a really key point. In all of that conversation, we're saying the competitive advantage of the company will be sustained or the expectation of the competitive advantage will be sustained during that period of time. Those are the things we're saying as an investor. Now, on the show, because it's a lot more fun to talk about this kind of stuff, on the show, a lot of the times we're talking macro and we're talking you know, what we think from a speculative point of view, yeah, I think Japan's going to be, you know, a disaster, but we're really kind of stepping into the realm of more speculation when we talk about that kind of stuff on the show than really how we invest our money. Yeah. So the way to think about investing is that it's really, really boring. I think you might even have Chalamonger have a quote, something like that. He's been really been making his money just by waiting. I mean, and who thinks it's fun just to wait? And if you're looking for action, if you're looking for a lot of things to happen really fast, investing is probably not for you. As an investor, there is no action at all. You would buy a company and you would hold it for 10, 20 years, perhaps the rest of your life. So really think of investing as something that's, that's really boring. That's, that was actually my key point here. One extremely important point from chapter one to chapter seven is Graham's discussion about active and passive investing. I think his definition of a passive investor is really interesting in today's context because for the passive investor, he's really talking about finding high quality picks and then just holding on to them. I think if Benjamin Graham was alive today, he would probably say something like, find an ETF that has a tweak of value in it. That's how I would assume Benjamin Graham would look at the passive investors today. The really interesting thing about passive investing is that when reading the intelligent investors, the guidelines he provides for really solid picks, I think they're just timeless. When I read that today, I'm thinking, that sounds like a great idea. That's probably what one should do if you had no opinion about the market, if you have no opinion about the sustainable competitive advantage, find blue chip stocks with these given criteria in terms of dividend payments, conservative financing, and so on. You would probably do better than most active investors. And what Stig's really hitting at in the book between passive and active Graham describes in the book as the defensive investor and the aggressive investor. And so here's a quote from the book that Graham has for the aggressive investor. He says, the aggressive investor will expect to fare better than his passive equivalent, but his results may well be worse. And he gets into a lot of discussion about that, where he says that these aggressive investors, they're armed with all this information. And they're actively trading. They're using the speculative approach, if you will. And they're actively trading and making all these decisions. And he says, but so is everybody else that's armed with that same amount of information. And what he finds is these guys are going after and trying to get a 12 or 15% return or, or the higher end of this return. But what they actually get is a return that's lower than the defensive investor who's really just kind of going after maybe call it a 7% return, maybe a little lower in today's markets than when Graham wrote this. Because back then you were at different you know, interest rates and different multiples and stuff. But now I think if you're, if you're going for 7% these days, you might be stepping into something really risky. I call this the active investor. Actually, if you read the, the book, he would sometimes call it the enterprising investor or the aggressive investor. Like... I remember the first time I read this book, I was like, how many types of investing are there? And, <laughs> and it seems like there's only two. He just uses a bunch of different terms. Before we move on, I just want to say one, one quick thing. I really respect Benjamin Graham as one of the biggest thinkers in terms of investing. As a writer, 
I'm not really sure that was his forte. <laughs> yeah, he was bad. No, you, I'm glad you brought this up because people need to be prepared. Because if you're listening to this and you go out and you buy his book, it's not an easy read. It's quite dry. It's difficult. If there's financial terminology that you're not familiar with, you will probably really struggle with this book. Even though it's the dumbed down version of security analysis. I remember the first time I read this because I didn't have a background in financial accounting and things like that. Man, did I struggle with this book. I mean, it was brutal. I just knew it was a really important read because Warren Buffett and all these other guys had said it was so important. But man, when I first picked it up and started trying to read it, I struggled. It was very difficult. Yeah. And, and it's funny because in financial accounting, as, as many artists know, we have a lot of different terms for the same things. And obviously, Graham, even though he's a professor and he's used to teaching people, he would just use all the almost like the more different terms for the exactly the same thing, the better. So it's definitely not your, your average textbook. <laughs> but just one quick thing I would like to say about the active investor is that he would be saying you should buy unpopular stocks. And the way that Benjamin Graham looks at this is that he's showing people a table of PE ratios. And he's actually saying, and this is, I think the reason the book is written in 1949. And already back then, he was conducting studies in terms of how will companies perform if there is in this decile in terms of PE? And I think he was just so much ahead of his time because he didn't have a computer or anything like that at his disposal. He just thought this would make sense. And then he conducted a lot of research and found, okay, I should probably buy unpopular stocks measured on a, on a PE ratio basis. I think that was really interesting. And the last thing I want to say about the active investor, and, and this is something we return to later in the in the podcast, is that he is always comparing price and quality. He's saying, as an active investor, well, you might buy high-quality companies, but you might also buy low-quality. It depends on the price. So I just think that's it's really the, the discussion Preston was referring to previously when he was talking about discount rate and the earnings. Like All that is good as fine, but we have to speak about what is the valuation. And that's why we have these conversations uh, between the two of us. And we're going to talk a little bit more about intrinsic value later in the episode. And you know, we have a tool for calculating that stuff. We'll hand you guys off to. So if you're wanting that, just uh, stay tuned. We're going to get to it here later on. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. 
For more information, speak with an advisor today at Corient.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. That's Corient.com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. So the next thing we'll talk about in this group of chapters that we're discussing right now, which is one through seven, is inflation and corporate earnings. So Graham's opinion was that stocks or companies were somewhat inflation-proof. Not 100% inflation-proof, so don't think that if you buy a stock that it's going to be protected completely by inflation. But he said that a, a portion of it is protected. Now, he doesn't really kind of get into how you would solve or figure out like a mathematical number of how much of it is or is not. But he's saying if you're comparing it to a bond, a bond is 100% impacted by inflation. So, and Jim Rickards talked about that a little bit in our interview where he was saying, you know, if the inflation rate is is 5% and your interest on your bond is 3%, well, the person who, who owns the bond is getting tore up. They're just getting crushed because the inflation rate is exceeding the money that they're actually getting back. So with a stock, Graham doesn't say how much, but you're partially protected from that inflation piece. Now, it's really interesting. I can't remember the year that Warren Buffett wrote a shareholder letter discussing this exact topic, but Buffett talks about why that exists, why companies are somewhat inflation protected. And where Buffett gets into it is a company that has a lot of intangible assets on their balance sheet. They're actually protected more from inflation than a company that has a lot of tangible assets on their balance sheet. And his reasoning is when the company has to replenish their inventory or they have to replenish their property or whatever that tangible asset is on their balance sheet, when they have to replace that, they have to pay the higher price of the inflated price of whatever it is that they're replenishing it with. And so that portion of the company's revenues that then support the balance sheet sustainment and things like that, that's what's impacted by inflation. Whereas if, let's just say you had an intangible asset like a brand or maybe digital media that you're selling on the internet or something like that, the price can just be simply adjusted to the inflated price. And you're not really having to deal with inventory or anything like that where you're having to pay a higher price. So that's where Buffett kind of went and took Graham's idea and took it to a whole new level. Now, here he is taking his professor's (laughs) content and just elaborating on it more. Just kind of you can see how he just blossomed from some of this information that he learned as, as a young kid and just ran with it as an adult later on in his life. If you ever heard Warren Buffett talk about the intelligent investor, he would say, you need to read chapter eight and you need to read chapter 20. So that's also why we decided to have these four segments. And one of them is chapter eight, which is Mr. Market. So let me just try to describe the way that Benjamin Graham might have described this in his class. So the way he liked to describe it is he'd say, imagine that you're at your house and you're just kind of sitting there reading the newspaper on your chair and the doorbell rings. And so you go over and you open up the door and there's a gentleman there. He's dressed up in a suit and his name is Mr. Market. 
And so Mr. Market comes to your door literally every single day, kind of the same time. He, he rings the doorbell and he says, hey, I've got these companies that I want to sell you. And he says, I've got this one here. It's called XYZ and I'm selling it for $30 today. Yesterday, it was $35, but today I want to sell it for 30 And then he says, I have company, you know, ABC. Yesterday, I was selling it for 90 but today I want 100 for this one. And so... The way he was describing it is each day, this guy's going to come back with a different price. Sometimes he's going to want more. Sometimes he's going to want less. Sometimes he's going to want way less. And you as the calm, competent, consistent, balanced thinker that you are need to listen to what he's offering you and then make your own conscious decision on what something is worth. So whenever he comes and says company XYZ and it's, you know, he wants to sell it to you today for $30, that's his offer. Now, what do you think it's worth? If you think it's worth $50, well, and he's offering it to you for 30, well, that's a heck of a deal. And you, you should maybe buy some of that from him because he's offering you at a great price. Now, the other company, ABC, if he wants 100 and you think it's worth 75, why in the world would you buy that if he's offering it to you for 100? It makes no sense. And so this is kind of the, the example that he would use in his classroom to teach students that it's a choice. The price that you're being offered on the market is a choice for you to determine whether you think that that's a good price or a bad price using your own analysis of what you think something is worth or the value or the tr- intrinsic value, which Stig is talking about. The price is just that. It's an offer. It's somebody saying, hey, I'm going to sell you my car for $35,000, even though you could go to a lot right next to it and buy it for twenty-five. dollars It's an offer. You don't get upset. You don't get angry. You just kind of look at it for what it is and be like, hey, yeah, that's a bad offer. No, thanks. And that's why that chapter is so important, so incredibly important. In fact, Stig said in the intro of the book that Warren Buffett provides, the preface, that is one of the, uh, Warren Buffett made four points. I'm just going to read these out loud to you real fast. Warren Buffett says, investing doesn't require a high IQ. Warren Buffett says, successful investing is a result of implementing a sound strategy and being able to control your emotions. This book, The Intelligent Investor, provides the strategy and you need to provide the emotional control. The next one is, pay attention to chapter eight and chapter 20, which we're just talking about chapter eight. And then the last one, which is a really interesting point, he says, outstanding results depend on three factors, intellect, effort, research, and the number of market swings you get the opportunity to experience. And notice how he says the opportunity to experience a market swing. So when you have a major downturn or whatever, Warren Buffett looks at that as an opportunity because he knows that price and value are completely out of whack. And that's his ability to really kind of take advantage of the opportunity. So that's chapter eight. It's all about Mr. Market. It's understanding that you're being offered opportunities at, at every single day. There's an opportunity because every single stock is priced at a different level and all these different emotions. Yeah. And I just want to ask you a quick question here, Preston, because this is a very popular question. So given what you have told us about Mr. Market, and I've heard you can't time the market. So are the two opposites? Is the paradox or are the two different things? I don't see that as being two different things at all. So my opinion is you're not timing anything. What you're doing is you're looking at all the different opportunities that exist at time now. So as I look at a bond, 
10-year treasury. There's all sorts of different bonds. You got federal bonds, you got corporate bonds, you got munis, you got all these things that all have a different level of risk. But if I was going to do it, it what Buffett would describe as a zero risk investment, that's the 10-year treasury. That's giving me, you know, a one point, what is it? 1.7% return or somewhere around in that ballpark. When I look at the U.S. equity market, it's almost, it's at 17,900 on the 26th of April when we're recording this. That for me is very high, but when you figure out what return that'll give you based off the the new earnings, you're at about a 4% return where it's been for the last year. Ever since we've been recording this podcast, it's been about a 4% return. It hasn't really moved very much. So when I'm comparing those two, this is the key point. The yields are, are drastically different. One's giving you double the return of the other, but you have a lot more risk associated with one versus the other. So now you have to ask yourself, and this is where it becomes different for each person, and every person is going to see this differently, is the extra risk associated with owning a stock worth the extra 2% return that I'm receiving compared to a fixed income, no zero risk investment? We were talking about inflation is impacting bonds completely. So if inflation, where's inflation at right now? Stick 1.7, it's about the same yield as the it's about the same yield as the 10-year treasury. Yeah. So that now takes my return on the on the fixed income bond down to zero. And then I have to say that some of that is actually impacting the the stock as well. Now, it wouldn't be the whole 1.7%. It might be half of that or something. So now you're really looking at a 0% return to a 3% return. This is my thought process as I'm going through that. So then I say is 3%, and I'm looking at it in kind of real terms here, is 3% worth my risk of owning the stock market right now? Fully knowing that everything's pretty much being manipulated by central banks at this point. And I would say, maybe not. I mean, that's really kind of a hard question. And I think that it's not something that I can really say with a lot of confidence that I feel one way or the other. I just think that there's a lot of risk in equity markets just because of how much they've been manipulated. When I look at how equity markets have been, and I'm talking about the stock market, when the stock market has been completely manipulated through quantitative easing, those are the things that I think about from a macro standpoint to a micro standpoint to timing the market, which Stig's really kind of getting to with this question. I look at it from what are my other options? You better believe I'm constantly looking across that array of choices, whether it's fixed income, equities, commodities, currencies, what's going to give me the best return at any given point in time. And then I'm making that choice. I'm not timing anything. I'm just looking at what's going to give me the biggest yield. Yeah. And I'm really happy you said that, Preston, because when people listen to on the podcast, hopefully they won't be thinking, okay, so what Preston Steg is talking about is that if the Japanese central bank does this, then this will have an influence on my portfolio. That's not what we're saying. And that we definitely don't want to time the market like that. What I'm saying and what Preston is saying is that Okay, so when you were buying a car, what's the value of that car and what's the price of that car? And that's what we're doing with stocks. We don't think about uh, what will the stock market do tomorrow. And I think a lot of people are overthinking the question of, can you time the market? You probably shouldn't be thinking like that. You should be thinking, what does it cost and what's the value? And just stop your thought process there. And if you find good bargains, you'll probably be better off and, and time will really take care of the rest for you. And it really gets back to the fundamental thing that Graham's talking about in this book is, are you speculating or are you investing? Because if you're investing, you're protecting your principal. You're putting your money into things 
that you have no idea how it could go wrong. That's investing is when you're saying, hey, this looks like a very good sound investment that has good consistent returns over time. That concludes chapter eight. Let's go to nine through 19 and kind of hit some of the high points here. So if we should label chapter nine to chapter 19, it's really about how to find the right stocks. And Benjamin Graham, he's much more specific in these chapters compared to the first seven chapters of which criteria should you set up. But the first thing Chris and I would like to talk about is him explaining what is a discount rate and what is normalized earnings and why is that important in determining the intrinsic value of a stock. So the thing that I was kind of surprised with in getting kind of to what Stig's referring to here with the discount rates, and when you're reading security analysis, which was his big first textbook, a lot of it was all about fixed income bonds. I'd say what the first 25 chapters are, are almost all about bonds and fixed income investments. With this book, with The Intelligent Investor, it's really kind of focused towards common stock. And really, kind of, there's some discussions about bonds, but really he's, he's talking a lot about stock investing. And so he does not come out and say, this is how you calculate the intrinsic value of a stock. He doesn't do that. But what he does do is he talks about a discount rate and he talks about really kind of just looking at multiples of earnings to price. And so let's talk about intrinsic value and discount cash flow and all that kind of stuff. So when you talk about free cash flow of a business, that is the cash that's left after everything's paid for and it's the cash remaining in the bank account. This number is so important because at the end of the day, the money that the company brings in at their top line, their revenue, where that's what it's referred to, the sales, revenue, there's you know different terminology and that's where accounting kind of gets a little bit confusing because you hear people throw around these terms and sometimes they mean the same thing. But your top line that if you had a, let's just say your business was selling Pepsis and you charge $1 for a drink just to make the numbers easy. That $1 that you would receive is called the revenue or the sales. That's your top line. Whenever we say top line, that's what we're referring to. That's the $1. Then after you'd pay your employees, you'd pay for the metal in the can, you'd pay for the sugar, you'd pay for all the ingredients that make the drink, all that stuff. You pay your taxes. After all that stuff is stripped away from that $1 in that sale, that top line number, you get to your bottom line, which is your net income. And that number might be 10 cents. And that, that would make your 10% margin. That's what we're talking about is that top line to bottom line number of what the company's able to retain from their sale. So when you talk about free cash flow, you're really kind of getting into that bottom number, that net income, but you also have depreciation. You got all these other things that you're accounting for, but you're eventually coming to what is the company able to retain in cash after everything is said and done? And that's the number that's important for determining the value of the business over time. So when we look at the company's free cash flow, let's say that we're just going to talk whole numbers of a business. Let's say that a company is able to have a million dollars in free cash flow this year. And then they had $900,000 of free cash flow last year. And the year before that, they had $800,000 of cash flow. So you can kind of see the trend here is that the company's basically adding $100,000 of cash flow every year. That's a good thing. That's trending in a, in a good direction. That's what you're wanting to see when you're looking for a business is determining that free cash flow. So when you see that and there's no guarantee, there's absolutely positively no guarantee that that company 
will have that kind of cash flow moving into the future. But what you're looking for is a business that has some type of sustainability, stability to it that gives you a reasonable expectation that in the future you could expect the same results. So one that's sticking I really like to, to use is Coca-Cola. This is a company that has pretty stable results. You can go back. Now, there's going to be some fluctuations here and there. But as you, the listener, listening to this, is your expectation that next year Coca-Cola is going to continue to sell just about the same number of soft drinks? If the answer is yes, then that's the kind of company that we're talking about that you can reasonably assess the value of it. Now, if you were going to say, think of a business that you think would be really volatile, that you would say, yeah, they made a lot of money this year, but maybe next year, I'm not so sure they could maybe pull that off again. Those are the companies that Buffett doesn't even try to figure out the value of, or Benjamin Graham try to figure out the value of, because it's really kind of hard to put a value on it. Now, if the price is low enough, yeah, they'll try to value it. But for the most part, they're trying to find that steady, stable business that they can actually determine and say, hey, I think over the next 10 years, they're going to continue to have this kind of free cash flow. And because of that, they feel like they can have a lot of confidence in their ability to take those, add up all those cash flows, and then discount them back to today's present value to try to determine what the value is. So when we talk about a discount rate, this is the thing you got to understand. When you add up all your future cash flows, so let's just say next year you're going to earn a million, the year after that you'll earn a million and you go 10 years into the future. So you're going to make $10 million over the next 10 years, but what's that $10 million over spread across the next 10 years into the future worth today? That's the key thing you got to figure out. What's it worth today opposed to the value 10 years from now? So In order to figure that out, you need what's called a discount rate in order to calculate what it is today. We have this in all of our books. We talk about this on Buffett's books. In fact, we have a calculator that automatically figures this out for you on Buffett's books. We'll have a link for it in the show notes if you want to go play around with it. But what you're doing is you're adding up all those future cash flows. You're using a discount rate. And so the discount rate that you typically use or that Buffett recommends that you use is the 10-year treasury. So when you discount it back at whatever interest rate you choose, and I think the starting point is always the 10-year treasury, you bring that back, it's going to say that the stock is worth $100 or $50, and you obviously have to divide out the number of shares outstanding. So this is kind of a a process, if you will. And, And we have videos, we have detailed videos that teach people how to do this. And to be honest with you, Graham doesn't get into this level of valuation in his book. He talks about it. He says, you need to do a discount analysis. You need to figure out what the present value is today based off of the expectation of the company to earn in the future. But he doesn't get into these equations. He doesn't get into the math behind this. And that was one of my frustrations with this book because I wanted to get into that. I think for a lot of people out there, they hear the discussion, they're like, well, okay, well, how do I do this? Yeah, you're definitely right, Preston, because we're all looking for that one formula that can just tell us what the intrinsic value is and let us compare that to the current market price. But unfortunately, it's not that simple. So we talk about the discount rate first. How I teach my students to look at this is I'm teaching them about the opportunity cost, first of all. So the opportunity cost is really important. That's also why Warren Buffett uses the 10-year treasury, because that is an opportunity cost of a risk-free investment. Intuitively, that's also why you would rather want $1 today than in a year, because you would have the chance to invest that dollar 
and get a return from that over that one year. Another thing to include is inflation. If we have a high inflation, we would everything else demand a higher return on our capital. I also think it's important to look at risk and compare that to the discount rate that you're using. And the hard thing about this is that there are no finite number that we can just say this is the perfect measure of risk. And I think one of the best examples I come up with is that a lot of people have approached me and want to help me raise capital to their startup company. And whenever you are you're in such a process and you would usually uh, issue shares to raise capital, you would have to consult with them about, so what do they think their company is worth? How do they come up with the valuation of the company? This all come back to discount rates because they were showing me all these graphs and all these prospects of how much money they will make. And that might be all right, but it's extremely risky. It's extremely uncertain. And even the highest cash flows, when you discount that with the appropriate discount rate, if it's a risky company like a startup, you'll just see that that is completely reflected in the, in the intrinsic value. So if it helps for people to understand, look at the discount rate and the, the earnings or the cash flows that Preston was talking about before as two sides of the same coin. You have the normalized earnings, but they have to be discounted, giving the risk, inflation, opportunity cost. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? 
Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. So let me talk about where I kind of have a different opinion than Buffett. And not necessarily Graham, because Graham doesn't necessarily say that it needs to be a 10-year treasury used as the discount rate. That's much more Buffett that's saying that. I disagree with Buffett on that. I think that the discount rate should actually be the the current yield of the S&P 500. That's what I think should be used when you're comparing an individual stock pick. And the reason that I have that is because, or the reason that I have that opinion is because of this. If I go and I take an individual company, and I use, for in today's example, the 10-year treasury is 1.7%. That's going to give me a much higher intrinsic value of a stock using a 1.7% discount rate than using what we think the, the current S&P 500's yield is, which is 4%. So if I use 4% compared to an individual company, I'm actually going to get a lower intrinsic value on that business because I use the higher discount rate. Now, The reason why I'm saying use the S&P 500 is because if you took an individual stock and you compared it to the S&P 500 and you made both of them have the same yield, in this example, a 4% discount rate, I'm going to tell you every single day of the week that the S&P 500 is lower risk than an individual company. So why in the world would I use the discount rate of uh, the 10-year treasury when I could be using something that's giving me a more matched, if you will, risk and more conservative price estimate by using the current yield of the S&P 500. I think that that's a much more appropriate discount rate that's giving you a much more conservative estimate that's an apples to apples kind of estimate, A, because you're using equities, and B, because you're actually getting a much safer or much more appropriate risk appetite comparing a a basket of 500 stocks to an individual stock pick. That's my opinion. I'm curious to hear what Stig thinks about that idea. Well, I think it's a good point that you have, Preston. And I also thought about, so if we do use the 10-year treasury, does that mean that there is no risk in anything because it's so low? I can see that the interest rate would work in some territories, but it doesn't work today. And Perhaps at the time Warren Buffett was saying it, it might be taken out of context and the interest rate might be a lot higher. So I just think if we return to what you said before, Preston, when you said 4% for the S&P 500, 2% for the treasury, it doesn't mean it's just twice as good. The best way for me to explain this is that you hear about if you eat this, you will have a 
30% higher chance of this disease. That might be right, but you know, a 30% increase of nothing, it's still nothing. <laughs> yeah. I think that would be my take in terms of explaining what is the opportunity cost here, because I'm looking at this as opportunity cost. And if you're just picking an individual stock, obviously there could be a management issue or that could be like something catastrophic happened with this company. But if you own S&P 500, you own like all the companies and you don't have to spend time on it. So I definitely see where you are, when you're coming from in this, Preston. Where this idea kind of originated with was I would get frustrated because people would go and use the intrinsic value on our Buffett's book site. And I would get these emails and all these messages from people and they'd, they would do the analysis, they would calculate the value and they'd be using the 10-year treasury and it was like yielding, you know, 1.7% and they're figuring out the intrinsic value of these companies using a 1.7% discount rate because that's the way Buffett says. And they'd be getting these really high market prices for for different companies because this is the, the easiest way to understand it. The lower that that discount rate goes, the higher your intrinsic value number is going to be on the company. So as these interest rates continue to be manipulated by these central banks and it gets pushed closer and closer to zero... The intrinsic value of all these stocks just get pushed to the moon. You know, I mean, they just go through the roof. And so I'm looking at that, and a person would be saying, Yeah, so company XYZ is worth $1,000 a share discounted at a 1.7% discount rate. And I'm thinking, Oh, man, yes, yes, it is. But you're not accounting for the fact that with a treasury, you're going to get your money no matter what. The federal government's going to pay that back. You're going to get the coupon. With the company, you have no, there's tons of risk that the company might not be able to hit those earnings. And then you're only discounting it at 1.7%, which is giving you this crazy price. So that's whenever I was like, there has to be a better discount rate than the 10 year treasury that's representative of A, an equity to equity. Because, and this is, I'm going to totally geek out on you, but um, when you're talking about a bond, you're talking about a finite financial instrument. It's something that, that will mature on a fixed date. When you're talking about an equity, it's something that goes into perpetuity. So you're already comparing apples to oranges as far as I'm concerned, because you're comparing a finite instrument to an infinite instrument when you're talking equities and fixed income. So I wanted something that was different than that, that compared apples to apples, equities to equities, if you will. And I also wanted something that had a that compared a stock to a stock, but it was also taking into account the risk appetite. So for me, when I look at the S&P 500, if you can't match that, if you can't match that price, in fact, if you can't beat that price, why in the world are you taking an individual stock pick over the S&P 500 if you can't beat it? And so that's why I like using the, the current yield off the, the Cape Schiller. I know that the people listening to this might be frustrated. I think there's a few people out there that are listening to this that are maybe really enjoying the conversation because we are really getting into the weeds on some hardcore finance and accounting type stuff. But this is really important if you're a person that's actually calculating values of businesses and not just kind of selecting things on an emotional level, but you're actually doing some math to figure things out. And to be honest with you, one of the first things that Graham talks about in this book is if uh, if you're an investor and you're figuring out the value of something, there needs to be math associated with what you're doing. And so that's why we're really kind of going down this path and talking about the math behind, you know, determining the value of a company. Yeah, and just in continuation of that, Preston, I'm I'm sure you experience the same, but I get so many emails that talks about the intrinsic value. And I also have a lot of emails from people saying, Could you discuss that more in the show? So good good news and bad news. We just did that and you just saw how complicated it is. 
And also I want to say it has something to do with the podcast medium because we thought about this many times before. Should we talk more about intrinsic value? And you can just hear that when we're talking about this, we're talking about graphs, we're talking about math. A podcast is just a really hard medium to explain that. And if I could just come with another example. So if you look specifically in The Intelligent Investor, then Benjamin Graham would say, you can use these rule of thumbs when you're looking at earnings. You will look at those from the past seven to 10 years, and then you would weigh them differently compared to how long it has been since they had these earnings. Now, I'm sure a lot of people would, would understand what, what I said here, but it's, it's not difficult to explain, but it's difficult to illustrate and to simplify speaking on a podcast. So I guess that would be my disclaimer for not doing it before. So if you're really frustrated about this conversation, don't worry, as Preston said before, we have some videos that actually illustrate this. It's not because we don't want to talk about it on the podcast, but it's a hard medium to do so. Yeah, definitely go to the show. If this stuff piques your interest and you want to learn more about it, go to our show notes. We have links to the Intrinsic Value Calculator, which has the videos on the same webpage that teaches you how, where to find the data, to plug into the calculator, how to think about some of this stuff. We got all that on the on the website. So just go to the show notes. So we're going to skip over a bunch of the stuff between those chapters and go right to chapter 20, which is a really important discussion. One of the chapters that Warren Buffett said that we need to focus on in The Intelligent Investor. And that's the discussion about margin of safety and how important this is to investing. So the best example that I think Buffett provided that people can easily conceptualize and think about is the idea of a, a, a truck crossing over a bridge. So Buffett says, if you're going to build a bridge that can support 10,000 pounds and, and drive across the bridge, how strong would you build the bridge? Would you build it so that it was 10,001 pounds that it would support, or would you build the bridge so that it would be it could support 15,000 pounds? And it's such an easy discussion for people to have, but it doesn't necessarily have an answer. It's really kind of a I mean, if I was the person building the bridge, I'd say, okay, what confidence level do we have that, that the truck's going to weigh 10,000 pounds? What kind of weather are we going to have? And what kind of environmental situations do we have in this area where the bridge is going to be built? There's all these different considerations. But at the end of the day, you're going to kind of make a swag, if you will, as to what margin of safety you're comfortable building the bridge at. So, you know, off the top of my head, I'd say, yeah, we'll build it for 15,000 pounds. If the, if the heaviest vehicle going over it should be 10,000. That way you have your margin of safety. So when it comes to investing, it's the exact same thing. If you're wanting to buy a company and you can get a 2% return on a, on a 10-year treasury and a company is priced at a 2% yield, it's a no-brainer. You buy the the 10-year treasury because the yields are the same. And this is assuming that inflation is is nothing, just for ease. So that's an easy decision because the bond is a lot lower risk than the equity or the stock. And that's where he's getting into this margin of safety. So how much above that 10-year treasury price or above the yield you'd expect to get out of the S&P 500, how much above that do you need in order to make a selection on an individual stock pick? So if you're out there and you're calculating the intrinsic value of General Electric, and I don't know what the intrinsic value of General Electric is, but let's just say that you determine it is 5% or 6%. Is that margin, that 1% or 2%, is that extra 1% or 2% above the S&P 500 giving you a 4% return worth your risk? I can't answer that. I don't know. That's completely up to you. 
to determine what that margin of safety needs to be in order for you to make that selection. But that's what Buffett's getting into here, where you're you're jumping from one risk scale to the next, where S&P 500 is lower risk than the individual stock pick and the 10-year treasury is less risk than the S&P 500. You have to make that determination of where you're satisfied, assuming more risk for the yield that you're potentially going to get. And that's a key word, potentially going to get. And it's really kind of up to you to determine. But I think the discussion, and for a lot of people, just thinking of things in that context is a really important thing. So Stig, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this margin of safety stuff. Well, I think I agree with you, Preston. <laughs> Actually, if you saw, I was eager before saying something. It, it wasn't so much about the, the margin of safety. It's one of those things that either you, you get it or you don't. I think the vast majority of people out there, they'll be saying, hmm, bridge, 10,000 pounds, 15,000 pounds. It makes a lot of sense. And then you have other people and they might not listen to this podcast saying, oh, so I saw that the stock was down 4% yesterday, so it's probably going to bounce today. I mean, it's just different ways of looking at stocks. And if you accept the whole notion about that price and value is two completely different things, I think the margin of safety concept is extremely powerful, but also think it's so simple that if you have the right mindset, you could probably have figured the whole thing out faster than we could explain it because it's just so obvious. But if I should talk about the intelligent investors in general and what I was missing, because I would really like a discussion about competitive advantage. And for anyone who knows about Benjamin Graham, they would be saying, Stick, that doesn't make any sense that you say that because Benjamin Graham, he is very quantitative. He is not saying this company would do well because they have valuable and changeable assets, or he would not be saying this company would do well because they have a strong brand. That's not his type of investing. Just want to throw that out to you guys out there. If you're looking for the one book and you heard about everyone saying you should be the intelligent investor because that's where you can really shape your investment philosophy, then I'll say yes, the latter is true. This book is vital for you to shape your investment philosophy just as it did with Warren Buffett. But still, if you want to do active investing, and if you want to do active investing like Warren Buffett is doing, then you also need to have the qualitative part included. And I think that was something I was missing from, uh, from this book. So that concludes our episode for this week on uh, The Intelligent Investor. Hopefully you guys uh, enjoyed our conversation. We apologize if we got a little too technical over the audio format, but if we did and you want to see more stuff on video, we got the Buffett's Books tutorials, which are completely free. Uh, All the calculators, all that stuff is free, Um, and we'll have links in the show notes for that. So thanks for joining us this week, and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application. 